Like today, it was a good Friday, 25 years ago, when history began a new chapter. An agreement that unites loyalist and republican, unionist and nationalist leaders in a wide-ranging historical accord. People hadn't dared hope that it was possible. But after three decades of sectarian violence, euphemistically known as the Troubles, which had unleashed a reign of terror and killings across Northern Ireland, suddenly everything was about to change. I said when I arrived here on Wednesday night that I felt the hand of history upon us. Today I hope that the burden of history can at long last start to be lifted from our shoulders. The Good Friday Agreement put a stop to the bombs and bullets and instead it ushered in a new era of hope as politicians reached across the divide to work together. This was the Ulster Unionist Party's David Trimble and Sinn Féin's Gerry Adams. I look forward to the future. I hope that the people of Northern Ireland will endorse this agreement. I hope that we will be able to move together, forward together, in a positive way. I see a great opportunity there for us to start a healing process here in Northern Ireland. We are here reaching out the hand of friendship and representing our electorate. These negotiations and the new arrangements which result from them are part of our collective journey from the failures of the past towards a future together as equals. But in recent years, that era of peace has taken a battering. At one of Belfast's peace lines last night, the peace was broken. In the hands of teenagers, petrol bombs thrown in both directions over the wall. It was four years ago, on the night before Good Friday, that Northern Ireland saw just how fragile that peace was, with the tragic death of the young journalist, Lyra McKee. The 29-year-old was reporting on unrest in the city of Derry. The police have described the killing as a suspected terrorist incident linked to dissident Irish Republicans, the new IRA. 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement, could peace be at risk again because people don't remember the troubles? Is a lack of knowledge about the past shaping the future for the ceasefire babies, the generation that grew up expecting peace? The Sunday Times, the Ireland Edition, commissioned two national surveys, and we decided, let's just ask young people, what do they remember of the troubles? And we collated all the results, and they're pretty, they're pretty shocking. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Good Friday Agreement, 25 years on. How the ceasefire babies forgot the troubles.
I was living in England at the time. I was studying at the National Film School. I remember all of us feeling very anxious. We so wanted this so badly. It was just a momentous feeling that, please, can it change? And yes, there might be issues, but let's just embrace it. Please, we need to move forward. Alison Miller is the award-winning director of a recent documentary about her friend, Lyra McKee. For Alison, along with so many people from Northern Ireland, whether they're at home or abroad, the Good Friday Agreement was a moment of real hope. People my generation had all moved to England were desperate to move back home and have a better life and have children and move on. I remember meeting with other filmmakers from the north of Ireland, people who were on my course, and we all, like, hugging each other, saying, please, please, will this change? We were just really wanting to embrace it and really delighted and relieved, but also nervous. There's always an element when you come from the north of Ireland that, is this going to happen? Is it all right? And then, of course, not much later that year, we had the Oma bomb, which put everybody back in a complete state of fear because it was just so horrendous. That was August. A massive car bomb in Northern Ireland has killed more than 20 people, including children. About 100 people have been injured. It's the worst bomb attack in 30 years of terrorism in the province. There was a mass relief that this was moving forward, but also a nervousness that maybe something might go wrong. And you said that, you know, a lot of people your age had had to move to England just to sort of feel safer. How much of a difference did it make? How much did life change in Belfast from before the the Good Friday Agreement was signed to life afterwards? Personally, if I put it in a context, I got married in Northern Ireland in 94. And I remember when I got married, my husband's English, all his family coming over and trying to get suits for the wedding. There was army in the streets everywhere. And the Shankle bomb had been late 93. So people were very nervous. The Shankle Road was crowded with the usual Saturday lunchtime shoppers. The bomb exploded without warning. Many passers-by were caught up in the blast. Six people died instantly. When you take that to the further time after 98 and the slow decommissioning process, the process of trying to deal with army checkpoints and taking military off the streets, it was a slow but a visible thing where you started thinking, there's no guys with guns walking down the main shopping mall anymore or we're not getting searched for bombs at gates anymore. 2000, I moved back to Northern Ireland with my husband. It was kind of, wow, there's not any army walking around with guns and can this be true? We can go out and is it going to be all right? I grew up in the country, so I wasn't as affected as many people living in the inner cities. They were desperately affected, people like Lyra. But I wasn't, but I, I think for my generation, we wanted that hope. We wanted to come back and we love the north of Ireland. We wanted to just make it better. So I moved back with that in mind, that I wanted to have my children and grow up there. And Alison, you mentioned Lyra, Lyra McKee. You know, the piece that was supposed to follow, that hasn't always gone to plan. There's a lot of things that have happened since 98. For Lyra, he was writing so much from the point of being a young woman, growing up in Ardoyne, growing up a child of peace, only knowing peace and embracing that hope. I think for her to lose her life that night was 
a real shock to the whole island. Everyone froze. It was a moment where it was like, no, 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 not this again. Despite the profound changes that took place in Northern Ireland after the Good Friday Agreement, the legacy of the Troubles still casts a long shadow over the ceasefire generation. But in the South, in the Republic of Ireland, it's a very different story. My name is Rachel Lavin. I'm a data journalist with The Times and The Sunday Times, and I'm from Ireland. I've lived in Dublin for the last 10 years now and just moved to London last year. I was six when the Good Friday Agreement happened, and I have no memory of it whatsoever. Really? I think a lot of, like much of the stuff going on in the North, we just didn't know about it. And in some ways, a lot of people in the South are sheltered from it as well. So yeah, I have no memory of the Good Friday Agreement. My first major political memory would probably be 9-11. You know, the principal turning on the TV at school and us all being shocked. It wasn't something that was talked about in schools or... Nope. I don't remember being taught about the Good Friday Agreement or the Troubles that much in school at all. History is mandatory up until you're about 15 or 16. I think it might have been maybe a paragraph or a page in my history book, but we didn't really talk about it. We didn't really talk about it with our parents. It was all a distant memory and it seemed like it was a bad memory that no one really wanted to talk about at all. So yeah, I don't remember learning about it in school. I studied history then in in university and I didn't really touch on it that much either. I had this feeling like I already know it. It's almost like you've inherited the trauma, even though I didn't fully understand it at all. I just felt like, oh, I don't want to go there. But it wasn't until I got accepted to this internship program called the Washington Ireland Program when I left, just as I was leaving university. And what they do is they take 30 people north and south and bring them over to D.C. and you get to intern on Capitol Hill. And that's when I realised how ignorant I was because we were hanging out with these 15 people who are now lifelong friends from Northern Ireland. Even though we were so similar, you know, we were all just like these millennials who were like, have all the same cultural references. But when it came to things about the conflict, you'd realise how different our understandings of the past are. I remember I was walking up to Capitol Hill with my very good friend from Northern Ireland and they were like, we can't go this way. There's been a bomb scare on Capitol Hill. And I said to myself, why did I come to America? I'm going to get shot. I'm going to get bombed. I was like, oh, my God, being dramatic. And she goes, ah, feels like home. You've actually done some work at the, the Sunday Times looking at how people of your generation and younger now view the Good Friday Agreement and also the Troubles. Well, the question of how different generations remember the troubles has been on my mind well probably since I did that internship that was 2015 but right after that it was Brexit and then suddenly all this British Irish tension started building again and then there was the border issue there was a renewed sense of like anger toward Britain and certainly some of the commentary in Britain from certain politicians toward Ireland reignited a sense of I guess annoyance And I noticed on social media, a lot of weird stuff started happening where 
I started to see more extreme views. People were more critical of Britain. They used terms like Britsplaining, which is when you have to explain to British people about the troubles or Northern Ireland or the border. But then I started to notice even kind of stranger things, like Jerry Adams has gradually become a social media sensation. He's got about 300,000 followers across Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And he's singing and dancing on TikTok. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oh. Oh, hey. Oh, roach at the bar. Oh, the You know, he's quite a controversial figure, but he's extremely popular with young Irish people online. So things like that started cropping up. And then I also noticed memes going around that were increasingly showing more extreme Republican views. They would joke about bashing tans. Tans is a sort of derogatory term for British people, so it's a way of saying anti-British sentiment. Probably the nexus of this in Irish culture, as I started to see it online, I was like, maybe it's just young people, maybe it's just my social media feed, or maybe I'm just oversensitive, I'm just noticing it. But then I noticed up the row was becoming... Uh, a popular hashtag and a popular saying Just explain that to us. Up the Ra. Up the Ra is the way of saying up the IRA, which is both the paramilitary group in the original Irish War of Independence, but then you had the provisional IRA who were active during the Troubles. I mean, how common is this? How often would you see people saying up the Ra and under what circumstances? People would say it in the pub if they're singing rebel songs or they'd say it online, but it's a controversial thing to say and people know that. But there's also people who worry that, like, is this sort of like this irony, this cavalier attitude to like a conflict that happened just 25 years ago? Is it more extreme views being wrapped up in humour and irony and normalised to a younger generation? Is the troubles and the IRA being romanticised to them? So these are questions I've had in my head for years. And it's a question that came to a focal point in Irish culture last November when the Irish women's football team were a video was leaked of them singing Ooh Ah Up The Rock. It's part that people sing along as part of the Wolf Tones Celtic Symphony and they'll sing it in pubs and stuff and it's not meant to be that serious. But when that clip of them went out, there was like sort of a national reckoning. Both the National Football Association and the players themselves later apologised for any offence caused by the song. We'd like to reiterate that, um, obviously, we got in the moment and we sang 100 songs uh, last night and that was obviously the one that went out and there was a... Uh, we'd just like to apologise for anyone that was offended. It finally caught up and became in part of the national consciousness that, hang on, there's a very different attitude here in young people to older generations. They remember the conflict very differently. Older generations wouldn't dream of saying that because they lived through a time when they were all terrified of the IRA in a way and, and saw what was happening in Northern Ireland. But for young people, they were saying, we're just being ironic. We're just having a bit of fun. It's not that bad. So there's been this sort of schism between the generations, this sort of different cultural outlook mm-hmm. and this different memory of, of what the IRA were and how they worked. Exactly. But I'm a data journalist, and all, all of that is just opinion. I know that my social media feed is different to others. I know that the opinions about whether or not it's socially acceptable or how we think about these things is really divided. Why do generations remember this so differently? And so we decided to do a survey. <laughs> Tell me about that. The Sunday Times, the Ireland edition, commissioned two national surveys. And we decided, 
let's just ask young people, what do they remember of the Troubles? Let's ask some really basic historical questions. Do you know about this bombing, this massacre? Do you know who this peace advocate was? Do you know who this political player was? We did our first survey in November and then we did another one last month and we collated all the results and they're pretty, they're pretty shocking. Over a 1,000 people in the Republic of Ireland took part in that survey, and they were from a range of age groups. So when Rachel mentions young people, she's talking quite specifically about 18 to 34-year-olds, people who either weren't born or who were less than 10 years old when the Good Friday Agreement happened. So the broadest consensus is that they don't remember the Troubles in some really significant ways. We um, put a selection of 15 key events from the Troubles to them. Bloody Sunday, when 13 people were shot dead by the British Army in 1972. The hunger strikes, internment, the disappeared. And the majority will remember Bloody Sunday and the hunger strikes. But after that, less than half remember things like the civil rights movement, the Brighton bombing, that bomb that nearly killed Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the Battle of the Bogside, collusion, the Miami Choban massacre. These are things that are burned into the brains of our parents' generation. But for young people, recognition for the bombings was less than 25%, and recognition for the massacres were less than 15%. It's amazing to think such recent history is all but wiped out. 25% said they didn't know about any of these things. That's remarkable. Did you find that quite startling? I found it shocking but not surprising. How can an entire generation forget a conflict that was just 25 years ago? We asked the 1,000 people that we surveyed, how many people do you think died in the Troubles. Mm. So this is very recent memory. And I think of a thousand, we surveyed 1,014 people and only 59 people got it right. Wow. So official estimates for the people who died in the Troubles, and it, it can depend if you start in 1966, 69, and ended in 1998 or 2001, but it, realistically it's between 3,500 and 3,700. 59 people guessed within that scope. And then... Nine people said 100,000, 29 said over 30,000. And a lot of people then underestimated it. So most people in the South, the Republic of Ireland, don't know how many people were killed in a 30-year conflict on the island of Ireland. Just no real sense of what the scale is. And I think the reason is parents aren't talking to their kids about the troubles and our data backs that up. Is it also that schools aren't talking about the troubles? Yeah. So when we ask people of another very basic question, where do you learn the most about the troubles? Who's teaching it to you or where are you finding it out? They were more likely to say social media than school. Only 7% said they learned most of their information about the troubles at school. Also on the option was talking with older generations and family members, but only 21%, one in five, said that they learn the most from their parents and their relatives. I've had experience of this. My parents are in no way avoidant about the troubles, but it wasn't until after I went away and learned about the troubles myself. And I went back, I remember, I think I was at a family event, and I, I asked aunts and uncles, 
And I guess maybe I just hadn't asked them before either. But I asked them, I was like, what are your memories from the Troubles? And suddenly the stories came pouring out. I found out that my uncle had nearly got caught up in the Dublin bombing. Just remind us about the Dublin bombing. The Dublin bombing happened on the 17th of May, 1974. All the explosions were caused by car bombs so familiar to people north of the border. There was no way they could have been placed without the intention to kill innocent bystanders. Bombs went off in Dublin and Monaghan and 33 people were killed. The bomb that went off in Dublin was near my uncle's office. It went off, I think, just as people were leaving work, 5.30, Mm. and he got held up doing work. Left about five minutes later and he said it just looked like it had snowed because the glass had shattered all over the street. And he remembers hearing the sirens and the screams. It's quite traumatic too, recounting some of those memories, I imagine. In the vacuum then, where parents aren't talking to kids, they're not learning in school, young people, and I don't say this like young people today, I am a young person and I used to be pretty ignorant about Northern Ireland and the history of the conflict. But they want to learn. When we asked them in the survey in November, I think half said, I'm interested in Northern Ireland. But another half said, I just don't feel like I understand the history. So you can see if they're not learning it in school and they're not learning it from people who live through it, they're going through partisan political information online, they're going through social media and they're getting an increasingly partisan version of it. And that's really tricky. They should be learning a non-partisan version. The generation that came after the peace process are called the ceasefire babies. Lyra McKee used to write about them a lot. We were meant to be the generation that grew up in peace and all the hopes of our parents to not live through a time where there was bombings and killings and shootings all day on the news. It was meant to be this glorious, prosperous future. But the ceasefire generation are also a threat because if they forget the past, and this is true for any post-conflict society around the world, the fear is they're more at risk of repeating it. In response to our survey, the political response has been quite interesting. The Taoiseach and the Tánaiste came out and they said that they think the history curriculum in schools needs to be changed, that it, there needs to be more focus on the troubles. Coming up, how have the ceasefire babies fared in Northern Ireland? We'll hear from Alison Miller again, who tells us about one of the most famous members of that generation, her friend, the journalist, Lyra McKee. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Lear McKee. I'm a freelance journalist from Northern Ireland. You may know me as the face of the Muckraker, a blog about investigative journalism. My passion in life is for investigative journalism. 
Alison, you've made a documentary about Lyra McKee. Just explain how you knew her and what sort of a person she was. Well, Lyra McKee. I first met Lyra in about 2008. I was making a documentary about the Rape Crisis Centre in Belfast. So I was filming away in the centre and this young woman kept sort of rattling around and appearing in front of my camera. And in the end I went, excuse me, are you on a school placement? Just because, you know, I thought she was about 12. And she said, no, no, my name's Lyra McKee and I've just won the Sky Young Journalist of the Year Award. Who are you? While Lyra McKee from St. Gemma's Secondary School was studying for her GCSEs, she wrote an article about suicide in North Belfast and it's won her the UK Sky Young Journalist Award. It's given me a big confidence boost. It's shown me what I can do. And it's also definitely, it's mapped out my career for me. I know this is my vocation, this is just what I want to do. That was our beginning of our friendship, so that was 2008. And that's when I realised that this incredible woman was working away and I was so fascinated by her projects and I couldn't believe the standard of her writing and what she was observing and I was blown away by her. We became best friends then. What was she like as a friend? She was really funny. She had such a great sense of humour. She loved really sweet drinks. Didn't drink alcohol, but was really into all that. She was really bad at driving. She was really eccentric in that she knew everyone. She had this army of contacts that were just incredible. Always rushing to meetings and always finding stories that were not just in the north of Ireland, south of Ireland, European, global. I mean, she sounds extraordinary and so full of promise and such an achiever. Take us back to the day when that all came to an abrupt halt. Where were you when you heard the news? I was at home in Belfast and Lyra and I decided we were going to have a little Good Friday dinner party. It was quite late that day and I guess my last text message from her was about maybe 430 and she was in Derry because she'd just moved there to be with her partner, Sarah. And she sent me a message saying, please make me your lasagna, I love her. And I said, OK, OK. She went, oh, and could you make chips as well? Because I love chips. And I went, but you're on a diet. She went, no, no, no. And then it was like a joke. And then it was like, see you tomorrow. And like, you're the best. So my last text message on my phone from her is just, you're the best, because I was going to make her her favourite supper. And then about midnight that night... Sarah called me, her partner from the hospital, and she said, look, I haven't got long. I'm in the hospital. Lyra's been shot and she's dead. Um, Can I give the media your mobile number because the police are here and I don't know what to do? And I was like, yeah, yeah, give them all my mobile. It's fine, it's fine. She went, look, I can't tell you anymore now. The news hasn't broke. It will be a while, but I'll call you back, I'll call you back. I mean, that was it. And I remember telling my husband, who was beside me, and I had a friend there too. She dropped her glass in the kitchen and we just all stood there, not really knowing what to do. I just went, this can't be true. And none of it made sense to me. Shot, in a riot, dead. And then we just spent the night sitting by the phone waiting and gradually by the morning, that's when the calls started coming in from people to me because the media had my phone number. So that's when I realised that the news had broke and it was just, woke up the Today programme had it as a headline and it was suddenly 
became this big story that this young woman, who was my Lyra, was dead. Lyra McKee was shot during a riot in Derry. Police had raided the area to seize arms, but it led to a violent response which had spilled out onto the streets, and Lyra, ever the journalist, had gone to observe what was happening. This CCTV shows the moments just before Lyra McKee was shot dead on Thursday night. The 29-year-old journalist, seen here standing next to a police car, was covering the riots in Londonderry's Cregan estate. No one, no one would ever have thought there was a gun on streets and a gun was going to be fired into a crowd who all stood around a police vehicle and the police were in the vehicle. But this, I mean, it could have been anyone killed that night. It just happened to be Lyra. Her death shocked the world, you know, people who thought the troubles were behind us. Yeah. To have this brilliant young woman be the victim, I think, genuinely stopped people in their tracks. A lot of that came out at the funeral. This was a day where those from across the political spectrum joined together. Usual divisions were put aside. The leader of the DUP sitting with the leader and vice president of Sinn Féin. Along the row, Mrs May between Ireland's prime minister and president. To say surreal is, is the best word to apply to. It went from being a small funeral on the Falls Road to this incredible funeral that was it moved into St Anne's Cathedral and suddenly Secretary of State's coming, maybe Theresa May, President of Ireland. We were like looking at each other going, are you serious? There was a political vacuum, a storm and our government hadn't been together our politicians hadn't sat together by that time, I think, for a few years. Yeah. But they were coming together for her funeral. And we were kind of watching them file in and fill up the first seven rows of the church, sitting side by side. And yet they hadn't been sat together to work in government to try and prevent these sort of things happening. And Father McGill, who conducted the service, had already met Lear and been working with her on one of her stories. I commend our political leaders for standing together in Cregan on Good Friday. He summed it up quite well, I think, when he looked at them all, all the politicians from all over, North, South, Britain, when he said, I am, however, left with a question. Why in God's name does it take the death of a 29-year-old woman with her whole life in front of her? The death of a 29-year-old woman with her whole life in front of her to get to this point. When he said it, feeling the wave that went through the church was kind of astonishing because the rest of us were all on our feet, just agreeing with them, and there was a very slow drip feed of politicians starting to move. I mean, I actually look back at it and so does her family now and we're like going, did, did that really happen, all of it? And, and Lyra's writing kind of, strangely, there's so much she wrote about that when you look back at it now, you think, 
wow, she was writing about things that actually kind of became so relevant to her own life and death. She talks about victims of the conflict being political currency, bartered by both sides. I think the outpouring of grief across the whole island and it spilled into the UK. And there was a moment of people saying, we don't want this. We don't want this. And as you said, you know, it feels like Lyra often put it best when it came to exactly the situation. But, you know, in your documentary, you have her saying the three promises of the Good Friday Agreement were peace, prosperity, and that the children would now be safe. We have carried out what I believe to be the will of the overwhelming majority of people here in Northern Ireland. The chance to live in peace. The chance to raise children out of the shadow of fear. That is all that the people of Northern Ireland have ever asked for. And yet, you know, she should have been the ceasefire generation, yet hers was the 160th conflict-related murder since that agreement. Where do you think it's all gone wrong? Nothing comes without working at things. I mean, every relationship, every agreement, everything we do in life, things need to be worked at. But there's a generation like my children who now have only known peace who look up at those murals in some of those places and go, oh, hey, look at those. Was that the glory days? Or, you know, people like my dad, my uncles, they got all the action. Look at the glory days, which is shocking. Yeah. It's shocking. And I've heard that. And there's a worry that that comes out of if you take places in Derry and Belfast, places where there's extreme poverty, there's no jobs, there's no hope. They see the lack of jobs and this sort of dream that things are going to move on in a way that they think, well, maybe that was the glory days, there was something different and people were fighting and there was this. There was something in, I think, our politicians are failing us. Them arguing. I mean, what example is that for anyone? They need to have difficult conversations and really do that because the difficult conversations are giving us hope to move on. If we haven't got hope, what have we got? We have to hope and believe that brick walls are meant not to keep you out, but to see how badly you want it. We've got to climb over the brick walls and break down the barriers and keep pushing for that. Her sister, Nicola, says so beautifully, the bullet has got to stop travelling. It's got to stop travelling. And that's what... 99% of us want in the north of Ireland. We want that bullet to stop travelling. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, documentary maker Alison Miller, and data journalist for The Times and The Sunday Times, Rachel Lavin. Alison's documentary, Lyra, will be broadcast on Channel 4 next Saturday, the 15th of April. And if you're a subscriber to The Times, you can read more of Rachel's research on how much young Irish people know about the Troubles. That's at thetimes.co.uk. The producer today was Edward Drummond, with production help from Sam Chancharasak, The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a good Easter weekend.